This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Well, if it had been up to me, uh, anybody other than me would have given this talk. There's nothing worse, in my opinion, than listening to an artist talk about art, particularly a Christian artist, because in my experience, what they end up doing is they have their, their, their convictions, their conclusions in mind, then they come to Scripture, they read all of their conclusions, their, their, uh, their strong desire and ambition into Scripture, and then come into the church and try to teach the church about art in such a way as to end up guilt-tripping everybody into valuing and supporting their work in a way that, in my experience, eventually became very distasteful. And uh, I lost interest in and um, disillusioned about art in general. It also happened about the time that the Lord was uh, calling me back to faith after I had largely apostatized in college um, in everything but name. And uh, it plopped me down providentially here in Bloomington to continue my violin studies, which is why I guess I'm the one giving this talk, because I, I'm the music guy. Um, but he plopped me down here in a good church, and I was ripe for the picking. And so as is often the case, when you have a whole bunch of your old man wrapped up in something that you've given your, your life to, and the Lord saves you from that old man, it's hard to separate the goodness and the value of what you were doing formerly from the sin and the idolatry that you brought to it. Does that make sense to you? So it's, it's been very convenient for me ever since to pretend like art and culture and these things didn't exist and weren't something I had to think about. I preferred not to think about it, and least of all to teach anybody about it. But, of course, that's no good because God has, has made us to be culture makers and has put in his word a very a basically positive view of culture and cultural achievement. And uh, these are things that we do have to think about. It. So I've, uh, uh, about yesterday, as I was preparing, I started to get thankful <laughs> for being forced into it. Well, giving a 50-minute talk about art... Um, let alone how we might confess Christ through it, is a very overwhelming task. Um, it's like being asked to talk for 50 minutes about truth or about freedom. These are ideas that are so bodacious and vast that you hardly know where to begin. And I could have tried to limit the talk by adding a, a modifier into the title, uh, Confessing Christ Through the Fine Arts, perhaps, or the High Arts, or the Performing Arts, or maybe even get more atomistic or more specialized, the, the Literary Arts, or the Visual Arts, or something like that. And that's probably what most of you assumed we were going to be talking about anyway. I'm sorry to let you down, because as I've worked to think through who on earth would come, why did you come? <laughs> this, this conference isn't for artists, and I've had to assume that maybe a few, but only a few of you would have a, voc have a vocation devoted to an art form in the, in the classic or the popular sense, like uh, the high arts, a, a painter or a sculptor or a musician or something. 
I, I, wa- I wanted to be helpful to the people who would actually come. Particularly, I had in mind moms. How can moms benefit from a talk about art? Are you just interested in it? I don't know. So as I thought through um, who might come and how I could be most helpful to them, I decided to take a broader view of a definition of art. So here's basically the view or the definition that I have in mind um, when I'm talking about art here in this talk. Those skilled methods by which we cultivate, beautify, and improve the world. The skilled methods by which we cultivate, improve, and beautify the world. This definition of art is broad enough to involve all of us, for we have all been given some domain of responsibility in which to improve things, and in which we succeed according to some skill or method. Right? Surely all of us can see our our work as requiring some skill. And this is an older term of art. I'm not trying to equivocate here, define art out of existence. I'm just turning to turning back the pages of history, back to when before art became art. Where every every cultural endeavor, whether it be in the home or out of the home or whether it be scientific or decorative or whatever it was, was seen as to depend on its own art for fulfillment, to to complete it. So the skilled methods by which man cultivates, beautifies, improves the world. And all of us, not just vocational painters or sculptors or architects or poets, all of us have some degree of ability and before that, a responsibility to do this work. Now, in trying to think through these things, I've only just myself begun. And what I'm going to do is present to you the beginnings of what I hope will, over the course of my life and maybe my children's lives, be a thoroughgoing vision for beautifying, cultivating, and improving the world. The, we're going to turn largely or depend largely on the first three chapters of Genesis because I think the foundation of everything we need to know is right there for us. So that's where we're going to spend most of our time, the first three chapters of Genesis. I'd, if you have a Bible, please turn with, with me to it. Genesis chapter 1. God's Word begins with an account of His own act of creation, cultivation, and beautification. It says, as you well know, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Of course, God didn't stop there. Over the next, or the successive days, he uh, continued to improve upon this start that he had made. And ever, at the end of each day, he stood back from his canvas and examined what he had made and, and, uh, and approved of it. He, he, he gave it his, uh, he, you know, he stood back, looked at what he had made, and he said, it's good. Behold, it's good. I like what I made. I like this. What this shows us is very obvious that God has a love of making things. 
God has a love of making things. He's the first artist and the first art critic. The beauty God wrought in creation is staggering for its unity, its complexity, its order, its fecundity. It's, it's a, he creates things that create things. It's so fruitful. He, this is what Calvin says about God's creation. He has so wonderfully adorned heaven and earth with as unlimited abundance, variety, and beauty of all things as could possibly be. Quite like a spacious and splendid house, provided and filled with the most exquisite and at the same time most abundant furnishings. Once God had furnished this this spacious and splendid house, a world with lands, uh, once he furnished it with lands and seas and trees and plants and lights in the sky to mark the day and the night, and my favorite understatement of all time, he made the stars also. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) It's a wonderful use of understatement. And after he made the birds and the beasts and the fish and the sea monsters, all of which he called good, finally... God made a creature fundamentally different from and superior to all the rest and to whom he gave a kingly authority over it. On the sixth day, God made man, both male and female, and the distinguishing characteristic of man, the attribute that establishes his uniqueness and superiority, is that God made him in his own image and after his likeness. In his own image and after his likeness. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean that man was made in God's image and likeness? Well, it surely doesn't mean that we we physically resemble him. The children's catechism that some of us have learned and, or taught our children asks the question, what is God? And the answer is given, God is a spirit and has not a body like men. God is a spirit and has not a body like men. It's fair to say that the dignified design of our bodies reflects well our unique status as God's image bearers. We stand upright, there's a certain beauty and dignity to our design that goes hand in hand with the fact that God made us to bear his image. But we look in vain at our physique for the image of God. John 4, Jesus tells us that God is spirit, and it is the spiritual image of God that we bear, and which sets us apart from all the inhabitants of the world and immeasurably raises us above them. Reformed theologian Charles Hodge tells us that a spirit is a rational, moral, and therefore also a free agent, whose essential attributes are reason, conscience, and will. This is something we possess. We, we, we possess this spiritual nature, which distinguishes from other creatures. And it's this spiritual image in man which gives him the capacity to know God and to fellowship with him and also his, each other, to make philosophical observations, to imagine, to create, and appreciate God's works and his own. This is especially evidenced by several key elements of Genesis 2. So let's turn there. Genesis 1 is an account of what God made, culminating in the creation of man. Genesis 2, we start to notice man bearing the image of God and expressing that creatively. 
Firstly, we see it in his naming of the animals. It's a fascinating aspect of this account. God brought every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, in verse 19 of chapter 2, to Adam to, quote, see what he would call them. Isn't that interesting? He brought them to Adam to see what the creature he made would do with it. And what did Adam do? He named all the animals, which would have been a monumental task, which would have taken, would demanded all of the use of his mind and study to do this naming well. Naming things is profoundly creative. As anybody knows who's named their child, it's a profoundly creative linguistic act to name something. You, you attempt to define it prophetically or in, in, after you've seen the thing. You, you sort of study what you know of it already, you give it a name, and you, I believe we actually expect the name we've given our children, as we give it in faith, to bear out in the course of their life in some way. And the fact that God delegated the job of naming the animals to Adam and then waited, quote, to see what he would call them, end quote, suggests that God delights in sharing his creative work with us. God loves creating things, and he loves to see his creatures, his creature man, creating things, and sits back to watch what he does. God, of course, creates in a different way than us. He creates absolutely out of nothing. He made the world. We, of course, create within the context of that world that he created. We create in a more derivative sense. We do things with what he has given us. Still, God delights to see us using his gift of language to creatively interpret his works and and, and impute meaning to them. So that's the first thing we see. Secondly, we see... um, our man's image bearing exemplified in Adam's observation that while all the creatures that God brought to him had their counterpart, there was no helper found suitable for him. This was not something God pointed out to him. I, I, I think as I read the passage, it seems to me that this is something that followed from the animals being brought and his study of them, of observation, and suddenly a pattern emerges. And Adam, being an, having the ability to reason, suddenly knows his own loneliness. He discovers it. And he wonders at it. Um, now, in its own... Uh, oh, sorry. Where am I? Getting ahead of myself. God's creation of the animals is precipitated... Sorry, I I just said this. I'm getting lost. In the process of naming, a work that required considerable study and observation, Adam noted... I said that too. I'm so good, I don't even need my notes. (laughs) Until I do, and then I'm lost. This is a good example, seeing Adam um, make this observation, of what Johannes Kepler referred to as thinking God's thoughts after him. This is what man does. God has had, he knew what he was doing. He knew Adam was alone perfectly well, knew everything. And yet he delights to see man thinking his thoughts after them. 
through study, through reason, as we look at the world, we can learn what God intends. And then that, and God, of course, knows how to tell a story, how to develop a story, and and waits till we see and wonder at what He's doing, then to provide um, the solution of Eve to Adam. So that thirdly, we see in Adam's response to God's provision of woman a wonderful testament to him, him as image bearer. Once Adam became conscious of his lack of suitable companionship, God responded by putting Adam to sleep, removing one of his rib bones, and after closing up the wound, fashioning the rib into woman. Now, on its own terms, this is a mystery of profound proportion. Just what we read right there is amazing. Adam falls asleep, or God puts him to sleep. He takes a, a rib out and makes him. He had made Adam from the ground, from the dust. He makes Eve from the man himself, from a piece of him. A profound mystery. Blown even up, blown up even bigger in the New Testament, Ephesians 5. Paul tells us that this relationship of husband to wife is... Um, prophetic of a far greater love existing between Christ and his bride, the church. And if we had a week of conference talks, we could pull on that thread through scripture and gain a much greater appreciation of God's own wisdom and narrative genius, because that is one of the sort of connective, um, I don't know, arteries of scripture that gives it meaning. Christ and his church and marriage, and how it relates. But what we need to see here is this, that whatever insight into this mystery Adam possessed at the time, it was enough to completely blow his mind. And we know this because he responded with a song. The, way, the, only, the only way natural, or the, the, the only way appropriate to respond to so great a mystery. He, he, he gave a, a poetic utterance. Here's the song. It's in verse 23. He said, which in context of the Old Testament typically means he's saying, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is a poem. This is a song that Adam sang upon scene. The presentation of Eve blew his mind. And this is the way men who are made in God's image express their minds being blown, their sense of wonder. Now, we should stop and say about poetry that we have a negative view of it today. Particularly, we think of it as a, as a very unmanly thing, don't we? But Adam... Um, is, we must remember, is the consummate man. He has not fallen. He is everything God made him to be. He responds naturally in fulfillment, perfect fulfillment of his manhood. Whatever we see Adam doing is, is good, is natural, is what God intended prior to his sin. And so when we see Adam writing a poem and singing a song, a romantic song, expression of his thanksgiving and love for this woman that God has given him. We should look at this, men, and see... Uh, this is not him getting in touch with his feminine side for a moment. And it's the same with um, some of the most manly men of the Bible. 
King David wrote some of his best, most profound poems while he's being chased and hunted by his enemies, carrying his sword and wearing his armor. There's another example of this, but I'm forgetting. What would it be? Yeah. Moses, the whole people of Israel, if they had seen God just kill a whole army in the most profound and powerful way, they sang, they wrote songs in response. Writing poetry is manly. Hey, Brandon? (laughs) And men. The church can use it and benefit from it. So can the world as we... As we reflect on what God has done, the amazing works of God, uh, He has given us a gift as men, generally, to be able to reflect poetically upon His works. It's one of the best ways to express our thanks and appreciation and to pierce the meaning of them is, and, uh, is to give it poetic utterance. Now, in all of these things, I've been working to establish this general point that man from the very beginning was a profoundly creative and philosophic and poetic being and that these attributes flowed directly from his being made in God's image. Surely there's more to being made in the image of God than just being creative, but this is certainly one important aspect of it. While there's... Sorry. We move on then from the creative things we find man doing instinctually, naturally, without instruction or command prior to the fall to the things that God actually commanded him to do. We look back briefly in Genesis 1 and we see um, in verse 28 that God blesses them, the man and the woman, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is a a command that God gave them. This work of filling the earth through childbearing and subduing it through cultivation, what theologians refer to as the cultural mandate. This is the cultural mandate. But what you might also just think is the first statement of God's God's, uh, desire for total world domination. was not to begin, this, was, this work of total world domination or of the cultural mandate, was not just to begin any old where or to, or to begin from scratch even. Rather, God gave Adam a starter kit, a, 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 a template of sorts, an already cultivated and well-watered garden paradise from which to make a beginning. We read in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 8, that the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he talks about the, the rivers that met there. And then in the last verse, then the Lord God, or verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now how do we harmonize these two seemingly contradictory commands? He has a command to fill the earth and subdue it and to cultivate and keep a particular garden. Well, I think we harmonize it in just the way I suggested earlier, that this garden we see as Adam's starter kit 
the prototype for an ever-expanding and eventually world-encompassing city. A beautiful garden paradise covering the whole earth. Cornelius Van Til, who I think has written as well as anybody on the a, a Christian view of culture, he says, quote, Paradise was not a romantic, isolated spot to practice religion as a function of the soul. But it was the beginning of the inhabited earth, the beginning of the cultural world, end quote. So he's not denying that Adam was a worshiper and was to worship God and naturally would do that in the space God put him to begin his work. But what he's denying is that it wasn't like this little alcove that he went in to have a spiritual moment. There was work to be done and it was to start here and the work was to spread over the face of the earth. G.K. Beale, a biblical theologian, he suggests this, quote, The intention seems to be that Adam was to widen the boundaries of the garden in ever-increasing circles by extending the order of the garden sanctuary, the order that got established there, the beauty of it, into the inhospitable outer spaces. Now, considering Adam's previously noted philosophical and creative nature, It's interesting to note that we have no record of God giving Adam any further instructions beyond these general commands to fill fill and subdue, cultivate and keep. So the what of the task was given by God, fill the earth and subdue it. The how, though, was for Adam to figure out on his own using the capacities God had given him as image bearer. Just as God had brought the animals to Adam to see what he would make of them, so it seems that he gave Adam the world so that he, to see what he would make of it. He gave him the mission, the charge, and the, the details were left to Adam to work out, according to the genius God had given him. The creative potential and the intellectual burden of this task is astounding. If, if I'm right, and the, the, Adam's duty was to fill the earth with the garden. The, the creative potential and the intellectual burden is astounding. Adam would have to develop from scratch, master, employ, and pass on the knowledge of a nearly limitless arsenal of arts. Just think about all the things that we depend on today. If Adam's going to accomplish this task, he's going to have to set himself immediately to, to learning from scratch all the things we depend on, all the knowledge that we depend on today. The art of lovemaking would be of central concern. <laughs> As would childbirth, childrearing, and childhood education. Think of all that's wrapped up in just that those... Wooing a woman, getting her into your bed, doing a good job there, <laughs> impregnating her, her growing a child in her womb, the hard work of giving birth to that child, training that child, there is an it almost limited amount, a, a limitless amount of work, knowledge genius that goes into that. 
You women doubtless never think of your work in these areas as engaging with the arts. Because today art has become capital A, art. That means playing flute in the New York Philharmonic. Or writing poems like Anne Sexton. Dancing for Martha Graham. But in the older and better sense of the word, that, that is the skilled methods by which we cultivate, beautify, and improve the world, your work in raising children is completely an art form. There is nothing more creative than the conceiving, bearing, and raising up of a godly seed. Nothing more demanding of your creativity and art than this. The reason that so many of our young women are having to spend so much extra time on top of the just natural burden of it in learning these arts is that they're having to learn them as if from scratch because their grandmothers and mothers made a, a conscious decision to suppress the knowledge of these things that they had inherited from their mothers and grandmothers and to instead give their themselves and their daughters to cultural pursuits outside of the home. And so those of us who are reclaiming the, the task of the first half of the cultural mandate, we have this extra burden of relearning from scratch how to do it. And there's a tremendous amount of skill that it required to do this work well. Well, there's so much more that could be said about that and, and needs to be said, but time allows only to point out that virtually no discussion today about Christian engagement with culture and the reclaiming of the cultural mandate for the church, hardly any of it includes the first half of the mandate. The command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's either lopped off and disregarded as a separate and unrelated command, or it's assumed to be already fulfilled because, after all, the population crisis. <laughs> but it isn't fulfilled no matter how full the world seems to be because the command is to fill the world, ultimately, we, we know, with a godly seed. <laughs> The fact of the existence of a child is the only is the first step. The, the, the goal has to be to raise the child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so we have not hardly begun to accomplish that task, have we? The world is nowhere near filled with a godly seed. Now back to Adam, as I said, Adam would have to set himself to discovering and mastering the art of wooing, love-making, child-rearing, but also of tilling, planting, harvesting, cooking, gardening, pruning, grafting, carpentry, breeding, writing, sailing, not-making, writing, logic, rhetoric, chemistry, math, coinage, cataloging, law-making, painting, dancing, singing, joking, gaming... And so on and so forth. Van Til again has said, quote, God has bestowed great freedom and responsibility upon his image bearer in order that he may rule over the creation in a manner analogous to the way God himself conducts the affairs of men. Hence, God has not given man a set of artistic norms and rules, but he expects man to discover these for himself. That's a tremendous burden. It says in Psalm 115, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. 
and we are to rule over it, which entails this burden of study and of advancement and of mastery of art. So we've discussed what the what of Adam's task, filling and subduing the earth. We've discussed the how of the task by man's own genius, which is native to him as an image bearer. But what about the why, the ultimate purpose of Adam's mission? Well, I'm going to resort again to the catechism. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? And most of us know the answer, that, that the chief end of man His ultimate aim in life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There's no higher purpose for us as image bearers than these two intermingled things. To maximize the glory of God in whatever way possible while rejoicing in His fellowship and communion. And we've not been left in the dark about how to accomplish this task. The context for glorifying God and enjoying Him, at least according to Genesis 1 and 2, is the work of cultivating and extending the garden over the face of the earth, filling it all, filling it all the while sorry, with wise and godly offspring. Apparently God's glory is increased in the advancement of culture. God's glory is increased in the advancement of culture. We'll get into the effects of the fall and the relationship of the cultural mandate to us as redeemed in Christ in in a, a little later on. But let's pause here to observe that the divinely sanctioned method for increasing God's glory and our pleasure in Him cultural advancement, is completely at odds with one of the reigning ideologies of our day. So this view, this positive view of culture as increasing the glory of God, making cultural advancement, is at odds with one of the reigning ideologies of our day. What ideology is that? The one that says that man has encroached already too far upon the earth, Mother Earth, as it's called, or she's called, that we are very much in danger of overextending Earth's resources and that we must make a swift retreat with all due genuflecting and apology, <laughs> lest she become angry and we perish in the way. This is an ide- ideology that views the bearing of children as an act of extreme selfishness that keeps men's consciences burdened with the size of their carbon footprint, that weeps at the death of a spider and rejoices in the death of a man. The ideology known as earth worship, paganism. It's a very ancient form of false religion that is right now experiencing a great revival. Wilderness. Wilderness untapped and undisturbed by man is the ideal heaven of paganism. We are the problem, not the fact of earth's wildness. Wilderness in scripture is always a bad thing. Did you know this? Wilderness is a bad thing in scripture. A symbol of God's judgment, a symbol of banishment. Cities, for their part, can either be good or bad, depending on the, the, the nature or the, the ethical and moral qualities of the inhabitants, but it, they're not in, inherently bad. 
which means that they're inherently good depending on the, the, whether they're uh, under the control of the righteous or not. According to earth worship, though, wilderness is sanctuary. Wilderness is nature at her happiness, happiest, so they say. Encroaching too much on that happiness is believed to imperil the race by stirring her anger against us. These two views, the scripture's view and paganism's view, are completely antithetical. There is no harmonizing them. When the Mayflower first dropped anchor at Cape Cod, Colonel William Bradford, seeing the world with his Christian eyes, saw not a pristine garden, but a, quote, hideous and desolate wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men. End quote. <laughs> a pagan, of course, would look on the same view of America and see paradise set up and waiting. These two views of creation are fundamentally at odds with each other. They are really two faiths. Two faiths. And from them flows two different conceptions of moral, ethical, and aesthetic life. And that's as good place as any to press ahead to Genesis 3, where we learn the origin of this contrary view of man and creation. Turn to Genesis 3. Everything appeared to go swimmingly for about 35 seconds for Adam and Eve in the fulfillment of this duty. It didn't take long for the freedom of their will to become a snare to them. What do we see happening in the fall? Well, we see, structurally at least, a great reversal of the order that God had established in creation, which was God, man, woman, creation. It's important to see that the fall came about through the exact inverting of this order. The serpent, the representative of creation, at the bottom, comes to the woman, the man's subordinate, tempting her to exalt herself above God. She listens to the voice of the serpent, eats of the forbidden fruit, brings some to the man, who in turn listens to the voice of his wife, exalts himself above God and eats of the fruit, thus inverting God's original and very good order. That's the structural fallacy of the fall. And it's clear enough from Genesis 1 to 3, but however, Romans 1 helps us bore deeper into man's sin, giving us insight into the heart of the matter. Romans 1, 21 to 25 says, For even though they knew God, speaking of of Adam and Eve, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals excuse me, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What faults do we see attributed to man here? A rejection of God by refusing to honor Him as King. Verse 21. A lack of gratitude for His unmerited gifts. 
They ceased to give thanks to Him, verse 21. They turned to their own vanity, trusting their own sense of things over God's revealed wisdom, and they became fools who could no longer see or understand the world correctly. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the infinitely superior glory above their heads for the inferior glory beneath their feet. They became impure. In polluting themselves, they polluted all their works. It says in Scripture that to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. They chose Satan's lies over God's truth, and in so doing, quote, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now that last statement is the key to understanding the origins and essence of paganism. The context shows that that subsequent to man's rejection of God in the fall and apart from redemption in Christ, we are now habitual, instinctual idolaters, doomed to worship and serve creation itself. We can't help ourselves. The human heart, John Calvin has famously said it, the human heart is a virtual, virtual factory of idols. It just comes naturally out of us now. Glorifying God and enjoying Him is no longer possible for unredeemed man, enslaved as he is to the adoration of things that were designed to be kept beneath Him. And this is so abhorrent, a violation of order and good sense, that it inevitably leads to confusion in our lives, and we produce by it every kind of confusion and disorder, every kind of sin extends from this inverting of order and the fact that now God has given us over to it. And what did the fall mean for the image of God in man and his duty to fulfill, fulfill God's cultural mandate? Well, neither of these is withdrawn. They're both still, they both still stand, even though the first, the image of God, is disfigured and the second is rendered impossible. Impossible in what sense? Because we have, of course, advanced. We do, of course, cover the earth. But So in what way is the first command rendered impossible? Well, the image of God, first of all, was not erased by the fall. Man's basic ability to reason remains, doesn't it? Though it has been rendered dim and futile by our rejection of the divine wisdom, we're still able to conceive and bear children like ourselves with this ability to reason. Although we pass on to them the deep corruption of our own nature, we retain our instinct to be creative and to cultivate the sphere that we occupy, though we do this now impurely, because to the, to the impure, all things are impure. We conclude then that the image of God in fallen man is effaced, it's corrupted, it's fractured, but not erased. What of our obligation to fill the earth and subdue it? Was this revoked after the fall? After all, Adam and Eve were kicked out of, the, out of Eden, which was I, was, I argued, their cultural starter kit. Does that mean they are, they're out of a job? Well, no, the cultural task was continued after the fall, only it was frustrated by death, by toil, and by pain. 
Adam's removal from the garden was not indicative of his being any less obligated to obey God in the advance of culture, but rather to ensure his inability to eat any longer from the tree of life. As far as I know, Adam could have, through the art of transplanting, <laughs> extended trees of life all over, all over the world. But the reason he got kicked out of the garden was because that was the one tree of life and God didn't want him to have any access to it. And so he kicked him out. Look at Genesis 3, 22-24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So his duty, our duty to cultivate, has been retained. But we have no, no longer have access to the life that God gave us through the tree. So in verse 24 it says, He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So cultivation continues outside of the garden, but now think of the curses. Is frustrated, or much pain and struggle and, and is added to it, and it's performed in the midst of death. So the key difference, though, is that its original purpose, its purpose of self-conscious worship and service of God is completely and utterly lost to the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's no longer possible uh, without the redemption that is in Jesus to accomplish the, the, the point of it. It can be done, in fact, but it cannot be done in achieving its aim, which is the glory of God. Although we do know from the Psalms that even the wrath of man will give him praise. And so God's plan and purpose is not frustrated ultimately, if you, if you understand what I'm saying. Though God can no longer be self-consciously and freely served by His creatures because of the corruption of their natures, His purposes are still served by man's continued cultural striving. Those purposes are to redeem the world through Christ, to restore man to his original condition and purpose, and to succeed in that task wherein Adam failed. This is a mystery that has been unfolding ever since the fall and is still unfolding now, even as we speak. Let's begin to look at that mystery. Genesis 3.15 The first statement of this mystery comes in the midst of God's curse of the serpent Satan. Oh, this is impossible. We're supposed to be done. Huh. This is impossible. Well, you look at verse verse 15 of chapter 3. It says, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the Evangelion, the first promise of the gospel. The he being in reference to Christ who shall bruise the serpent's head even as his own heel is bruised. This foretells the final triumph of Christ's kingdom over Satan's which will be born out, is being born out in history. 
we just figure out what really needs to be said. So what we need to see here is that immediately, immediately after the fall, we see God promising to interrupt the otherwise inevitable corruption of natural generation by placing enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Warfare, strife, conflict. The, the warfare and the strife and the conflict that by all, re, all rights should exist is the strife and conflict between the seed of the woman and God. And here we see God intervening, interrupting it, and saying, I'm going to put, rather, warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, this, we see this mystery bear out in her children, Cain and Abel. There's a seed of a serpent, and there's a seed of, of the woman, which is the seed of promise. Abel, the seed of promise, who by faith in Christ, he's the first in a long line of, of those who live by faith in the Son of God and died in that faith, died for that faith. And we see Cain, the consummate son of the evil one. In view of the fall, the only... In- yeah, sorry, I said that. Moving on. The promise of deliverance and triumph through Christ is inseparably bound up with the conceiving and bearing of children. This is the point that has to be noticed. The promise of deliverance and final triumph through Christ is inseparably bound up with the conceiving and bearing of children. The means by which God intends to fulfill His promise of ultimate triumph over Satan is Adam and Eve's faithful and hopeful giving themselves to their original task of filling and subduing the earth. Redemption is completely bound up with culture. Redemption is not a change of plan, but a restoration of plan. Yes, unredeemed man also fills and subdues. Culture remains culture even though it is God-defying culture. And art remains art even though it becomes demonic. This is what Van Til said. Making things, whether whether it be babies or meals or houses or anything, is something of a necessity, which as they say, is the mother of all invention. But Christian making and Christian invention is fundamentally different from pagan making and pagan invention. This is obvious when it comes to overtly moral things, but our works are still different even if we both, Christians and pagans, have the same number of kids, cook the same meal from the same recipe, work in the same shop or office, plant the same crops, or hang the same painting on our wall. What makes it different? To the pure, all things are pure. And to the undefiled, nothing is pure. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. This is the fundamental difference between your culture making and a pagan's culture making. Is what Pastor Wilson was just preaching and affirming. <coughs> the difference is what? The difference is who you serve. Redemption is a restoration, a release from the bondage of serving the creature rather than the Creator. It liberates you again to serve the Creator. That makes everything you do pure. If you're pure, everything is pure. 
If you're impure, everything is impure. This is two cultures. And they are fighting one another out over the course of history. There's the culture of the serpent and there's the culture of, of the woman. The culture of Christ. The promised seed of the woman. And those who hope in Him. What's, remember what Eric Liddell said about his running. When he, when he ran, he, he felt God's pleasure. That's the difference between you as a culture maker and your neighbor who, if he doesn't believe in Christ. You can feel God's pleasure. You're free. You're thankful. You are able to advance the glory of God by what you do and to magnify Him and to praise Him self-consciously and to experience His benediction and blessing in your life, whether it be cooking bread or raising children or changing diapers or a late-night conversation. Whatever it is you're doing, you can experience God's blessing, a sense of His pleasure. You can rejoice in it. This makes your work in this world fundamentally different. It has lasting value, eternal value. The difference between a Christian's plowing and a pagan's plowing is that a Christian plows in hope. It's going somewhere. We plow in hope. We do our work in hope. We bake our bread in hope. Hope that through us, God is bringing about His the victory of His Son in this world. And He is bringing it about through your baking of bread. I'm thinking of bread because I came home last night and I saw these wonderful loaves of bread, farmhouse-style bread with a beautiful X on the top of it made by my wife, my, one of my favorite things that she makes, and it's so beautiful. Bread is so beautiful. We make our bread as Christians in hope. And, and that hope means that God, we, we believe, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then we set ourselves to being used of God to bring about that objective. We give ourselves to repairing our car, to serving our neighbor, to spanking our kids. And all of the knowledge and the skill required to it, we, we give ourselves, to, we research on the internet how to change our carburetor. Whatever it is we're doing is fulfilling the coming of God's kingdom on earth. Now, real quickly, once we, that was unfortunately too quickly summarized, but once we, once we get a hold of it, of this idea, this knowledge that whatever we do, whatever our hands finds to do, we can do it unto the Lord. And that He is pleased to use it to magnify Himself and increase His glory and to bring His kingdom. We get a hold of these things. We go wrong in several ways. Very easily. Let me try to give you three categories of ways we go wrong. We, we can very easily give too much credit to beauty too much credit to our cultural achievements. They, they matter. They're meaningful. God uses them. He approves of them. We can be thankful with them. We can, they, mean a lot, they mean a great deal, but they don't mean more than they mean. Art is a completely hopeless, for instance, art is a completely hopeless mediator. 
completely hopeless as a mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And yet it is so common today in Christian circles to think about art like a pagan thinks about art, which is to look at, to serve the creature rather than the creator, to give it praise forever. (laughs) Amen. Instead of God. And there is only one way of knowing God, being reconciled to Him, that is through Jesus Christ. So art is wonderful. It's to be affirmed. Your bread making is wonderful. It is not able to save you. And so we have to think very carefully. We have to keep art in its place. It is not above us. It is below us. It's something we do to express our gratitude to God as a reflection of, our, uh, of the fact that He gave us His image. We give ourselves to it in thanks. But it's not above us. It's below us. Number two, we, have this, we accept this myth. This has been common in various manifestations in the church throughout history. That, there is a, that culture is a common ground between us and paganism. It's like neutral territory. Over art, we can get together for coffee. We both agree that art is art. We know we accept the same definition of it. We have the same view of it. We can get it's like a neutral ground upon which we can build bridges. But this is there's so much to say about this, but it completely denies the antithesis which God has put, the warfare God has put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We're not building the same culture, no matter how much they at points seem to look the same. They are fundamentally and forever different. One is in service of Satan, and one is in service of the Lord. And it's obvious when it comes to moral points, when, it, when the moral implications are, are obvious, we can see it, and we can, we can refuse to have you know, commonality, mutuality about it. But it's not so obvious in a thousand other places. And I'm not saying that we should have our culture over here and, and let them have their culture over there. We should take our culture to them. We should, as Doug Wilson says, affirm the, the crown rights of King Jesus over all their works and say, look, even, even the wrath of man is praising God. Submit to the Lord and join us in giving thanks to God for the works that we do and that He does through us. This is the R2K, Radical Two Kingdom, if, if you know this kind of terminology. This, that's how it manifests itself today. The, the check your faith at the door engagement with the arts. This is probably the most important one, though. That is, we get a hold of art, we get a hold of a cultural achievement, we get a hold of image-bearing, get excited about it, and then we are willing to sacrifice the normal curriculum of godliness on the altar of that achievement. What do I mean by that? What's the normal curriculum of godliness? Commitment to your church, taking on of a wife, men, giving her children, caring for them, raising them in the fear of the admonition of the Lord, and everything wrapped up in it. That's the normal curriculum of godliness. There are single people, but they have spiritual children. In our church, we talk about this. You have my children. There are mutual obligation, responsibility. All of us have children to care for. 
and it and that the, there's the church, there's the family, and the and everything wrapped up in that. That's the normal curriculum of godliness. Not to be sacrificed in the name of cultural achievement. Cultural advancement and achievement has to find its place in that normal curriculum. And so, how does this manifest itself? Well, it manifests. I'm a Har- I'm a Harvey Fellow. <laughs> you ever heard of the Harvey Fellowship? I'm a Harvey Fellow. It's so exclusive, none of you have heard of it. <laughs> I received a bunch of money to come study at IU. That's the providential way God landed me here in Bloomington. From a Christian grant-making organization that has it as its goal to support um, uh, Christian culture makers who are going to like top five universities in their field and have written a really good proposal, you know. And after I finished my fellowship, I I got roped into evaluating um, applications. This is what they do. If you don't know, if you've never had a fellowship, this is the trick they play on you. For years afterwards, they get you to evaluate everybody else. Then you have to spend a month of your time going through applications. Well, um, what I consistently saw, I went to their summer institute, which was a requirement to have the fellowship, and what did I see there? Well, I saw all kinds of women sacrificing the normal curriculum of godliness in the name of cultural achievement, whether it be medicine, or being a lawyer, or being an academic, whatever it was. This is a widespread problem in the church today, particularly the Reformed Church. We get hold of excellence. We get excited about culture making. We, we feel bad. Somebody's made us feel bad that the, ch- that the church is failing so poorly and so miserably in the world. And we give our daughters to... To, or we, we're willing, and even our sons, to sacrificing what is normal for the sake of the abnormal. They, uh, what's a good way of explaining this in closing? Um, hmm. I feel like I wish Phil were here. I think Phil could probably suddenly was be popping with applications. My brain is shutting off. Um, think about that. The normal curriculum of godliness takes. If we here, here's what I'll say. We have to trust God to produce through the normal means the cultural achievements that he, please Him. Does that make sense to you? God can produce through his normal means what pleases him. There are priorities in life. His priorities should be our priorities. We should gladly give ourselves to them. And all of our art, all of our understanding of art, all of our appreciation for it needs to fit and be harmonized with what God has commanded us to do first and foremost. And we we shouldn't be we shouldn't be sacrificing all of that for the sake or in the name of saving the whales, saving the world, curing AIDS in Africa, or whatever it is. God wants to cure AIDS in Africa. He will do it as we give ourselves to the normal means of godliness.
Yes, Aaron. This might fit back into earlier in your talk where you said, it reminds me of UK Chesterton, I don't know if I can spit this out correctly, but you reminded me early on about we have this specialist view of art, and so we don't think of mothers having art. No, we don't. So we, also, so we go back to reform our view of art and understand that Chesterton has these wonderful things about now we don't dance because we have ballerinas. Professionals. But no, the no, more it becomes, yeah. Dance. The more a thing becomes, an art becomes uh, a function of a performance or of the stage, so we lose it. We, the more it becomes a profession, we lose it in our culture. We lose it as something we can do. We don't have a dance because we have dancers. Right. So we, have we have ladies in pink, I think is what he said. I'm getting the uh, cutoff signal from a dashing young man back there. Does that mean we have to stop? Is there, are there any other questions? Yes, David. One way I would express what you've been talking about is the fruit of the artist. We're all artists, as we've heard you say. The fruit of the artist is the fertilization of the gifting of the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. Say that again. The fruit of the artist is the fertilization of the gifting of the Holy Spirit, whatever spiritual gifts that we each uniquely have, by the Word of God. That sounds great. I don't, I don't understand it. All right. Can anybody explain that? Yeah. I, I just what I heard you say, you know, in a nutshell, is that God is the greatest artist. Look at what He created. Of all His creation, mankind is the crowning art, and that a man and woman can do the same thing. And here's another thing. Here's another thing. You give yourself first to filling. The subduing comes, it's like naturally. You have that extra child, you have to add on to the house. <laughs> you have to learn carpentry to add on to the house and a host of other things, you know. And subdue quite a garden. Can you come in and maybe afterwards about the Christian culture view I know I want to. Next year. Next year. <laughs> Could you do something for us in that write something about what you just presented on the Claire Notes Songbook blog or somewhere where we can touch base with that? Sure. Sure. I know what you, um, Rebecca, I know what you mean. I don't know exactly what to say about it. And part of the reason I'm hesitant is because we let the world in through our musical style that you've been experiencing this weekend. It, as according to many reform people would look, would say no, no, no to what we're doing. <laughs> Thank you. 
Um, and so it's it's like a mix, it's a very complicated question. You'd have to come up with a completely new musical style. Yeah. Okay. Here, this this was liberating to me as I was thinking a couple of years ago. It was liberating to me to realize musically. There's a whole the music the worship wars of the church are largely fought about music and style of music and what's what really pleases God and what doesn't. And it was liberating to me to realize that God has not inspired in His Word any musical notation. I know that David might disagree with me in the Psalms, but I don't. I think it's fair to say that there's no um, musical notation which God has inspired by way of special revelation, which means God is positively teaching us that music is purely a cultural phenomenon which is to be governed by the general principles of God's word but there is not a godly music per se there's not one that God has put his stamp on and said this is this is something that pleases me and this doesn't what makes something pleasing to to God, to God is the purity of the man who makes it and if a man is pure all things are pure you can so you you just you corrupt it by your outlook by your purpose by your idolatry or by your worship from a pure man will come a pure music and it but it will be it's just a it's but it's a cultural act it may have a whole lot in common with another man's cultural act yes i just want to point out that the decibel level of your well, we work hard at it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's amazing. This is the thing. Volume is a function of your preferences. Ta- volume tolerance is completely a function of your, I mean, within a uh, range. Uh, obviously, loud, too loud too loud across the board. But you wouldn't believe the tolerance you have for, for very loud volume when it's something you like. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, orchestras often play at 110 decibels. Brass players wear earplugs in an orchestra. It's very loud at times to play in an orchestra. Or to listen in the concert hall. It can be very loud. An organ in a church is often louder than our band. But if you're the kind of person that likes that kind of thing, I guess that's the kind of thing that you like. <laughs> Preference. Um, no one's a hypocrite in their pleasures, is what Tim Bailey is, is fond of saying. No one is a hypocrite in their pleasures. If you like that kind of thing, you get excited about it and you want it turned up. <laughs> so this volume's very subjective and a function of what we love. Turned up to 11. <laughs> Turned up to 11. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much. God bless you. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.